Welcome to Retro Game Redux. I'm Stephen Kreklow, a.k.a. Scuba Saul. And I'm John Kirby, a.k.a. The Kerblet. This week on the show, we've got B.B. Austin, Twitch streamer, member of Do a Barrel Roll, and one of the organizers of VGMCon, the premier Midwest gaming and music convention. Welcome back to Retro Game Redux. It's episode 10. Kurt, we made it to, to 10 episodes. 10 episodes, dude. I didn't think we'd come this far, but man, let's keep the train going. What do you say? You lack confidence in our ability to produce weekly podcasts? <laughs> it, we've come so far since January. It's like, man, I didn't think we would get this far so quickly, but I mean, I'm, I'm definitely wanting to keep the train going. I love this. This is great. Awesome. Well, you know, when we talked about the idea for the show, rather than just talk about news or like, you know, the history of games or whatever, which we, I guess we still do, you know, we sort of wanted to talk about the more social aspect of the modern life of retro games and, you know, the kind of communities that inspires the people that sort of thrive on this sort of seed of just retro gaming. And so I wanted to bring... Austin on the show, BB Austin from Twitch, aka one of the Backlog Boys. I'm not sure how else to uh, address you, but Austin, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to the podcast. Good to have you. Thank you so much, Scoobs and Curb. Yeah, really cool to be here. I appreciate you guys having me on. It's going to be a fun time, I think. Oh, we're going to have a great time. Otherwise, it's going to get cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awkward. <laughs> we made it to 10 episodes, and then we got canned because we stopped being cool. Yeah. <laughs> Austin, how's your weekend going? It's actually been really great. Nice. Yesterday is probably one of the most productive days I've had in like the last year. Nice. So nice. That felt really great. It's always a good kind of self-confidence boost. So what does what does productive mean though? What were you working on? Uh, a whole bunch of different kind of stuff. So you know, I, I, uh, my wife and I bought a house back in August. So there's been lots of oh, wow. kind of like nice. home, homeowner adult things type things to do. Excellent. She's currently out of town, which means I'm doing all the chores. So chores. Uh, on top of that, I had like a, a freelance gig that I needed to work on. So I was doing some sound design last night. Nice. And yeah, just all kinds of stuff like that, running around trying to get a bunch of stuff checked off the to do list. Uh, and obviously some things related to uh, a little event we're going to be talking about later as well. That's right. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I oh, think yeah. we can spoil it. We're going to talk about VGMCon later, which we've been, you know, going on about on the podcast uh, for a while now because we're, Curb and I are actually going to fly in for the event, IRL. So I can't wait to talk about that. Yep. Um, Congrats on the uh, home purchase and congrats on the weekend of productivity. I feel like I had a pretty good uh, productive week, uh, weekend rather, as well. I've been just sort of like trying to make music for me, so which doesn't happen because, you know, usually I'm just hired to make right. the kind of music that somebody else wants. Right. So it's, not, it's nice to have a moment to just sit down and, and just record something for yourself. So I did that. And also I was... Um, I suddenly I have this resale clothing sort of thing that I do because I started thrifting during, uh, you know, when, when stores started opening up after the early days of COVID. 
And uh, I, I amassed this large collection of stuff that <laughs> is kind of uh, choking me out of my living space. <laughs> wow. Nothing specific, to just stuff. <laughs> you know, stuff. You know, just stuff that just accumulates. G- gaming stuff. But also just like, oh, the, I, I ah. love this vintage Pyrex thing. And, Ooh. oh, this like, yeah, this teak sort of cheese board is really cool. And man, back when they made Pyrex, with the good stuff, is that is it that kind of Pyrex? Herb, it's all good stuff. I know that there's two kinds, ah, two nice. kinds of Pyrex. I celebrate their entire catalog to borrow a line from uh, Office Space. <laughs> Thrifting for stuff that you eat and drink off of is definitely a vibe. <laughs> See, now that's a, that's a way to put it. Only certain type of people can do that. Are, are you one of those people? I am not. I wish I was, but I, I just, there's something, some kind of mental block there. I understand. I feel like I could put anything in the dishwasher and then it would come out and probably be sanitary enough for me to eat off of yeah and i you're definitely right about that but there's just there's some kind of superstition i guess it's like a <laughs> well, i don't know what you call that but there's something there there's some little guy in my head that's like uh. what about what about like used other things like you, you i you're you collect games is that is that is that a false statement definitely not a false statement yeah anything else used is totally cool like clothes it's like interesting it's like oh i wonder I wonder what this person's story was, you know, and now I'm walking in their their shirt or their shoes or whatever. You know, that's interesting to me. Uh, pretty much no limits on on secondhand thrifty stuff besides yeah. kitchenware, cookware. OK, so that's the limit you put on is, is kitchenware. And, and Yeah, if I'm going to eat or drink off of it, for some reason, there's a mental block there. But otherwise, I'm cool. I mean, it could be my downfall. You know, you, uh, it, it could... <laughs> you've made it this far. I think you're OK. Yeah, I've built up a, a, a resistance to uh, foreign foreign germs from from the Value Village. It's your superpower. Yeah, exactly. So it's like you're you kind of like superstitious because you're like, wait, what if the next pandemic stems from my dishware and I didn't even know it? Right. Well, thankfully, I haven't sold any, so I'm not I'm not, not retransmitting it. I'm just hoarding it. <laughs> but I think I'm doing society a favor. <laughs> Curb, what did you get up to this weekend? Well, I wasn't as productive as the two of you. I actually had the chance to relax a little bit this week, uh, mainly oh, because um, you. You know, work's been a little less hectic lately. Uh, but I did find the time to work on some streaming. I haven't been able to stream in a while. I've been uh, so tired and, and stuff from work. Um, so I actually finally beat Awakened Evil. Nice. Finally, yeah. Excellent. That last boss is a is a fun trip once you figure out the patterns. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I really <laughs> I really had a, a good time with that game, and mm-hmm. I, I'm still threatening to go back and play it on legend mode. But threatening, you know, so many games to play. Like we already talked about, you know, the the dozens of games in our Steam backlog. Yeah, and I'm still working on uh, the Legend of the Mystical Ninja. Nice. Um, I'm a bit stuck on a particular level, but hopefully with some per- some. Uh, as uh, Scuba likes to put it, Austin, uh, stick to uh, I'll, I'll eventually get through it. <laughs> yes, I love that term. I said that once. <laughs> you really like that word, though, so go for Such it. Such a good word. It is a great word. Yeah. It is. Well, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I feel bad because we talked about, Jimmy was on the show five episodes ago. We talked about three games that we we're all going to play. I haven't touched a single one. 
because oh no, <laughs> I'm still working on those those dang black box NES titles. Oh my gosh, dude, you are a trooper. You're a soldier. It's been a journey, right? <laughs> it's been like a it's been a, a retro video game odyssey. Yeah, of sorts. Um, I've seen everything from games I could beat in three minutes, like Donkey Kong, to games like Clue Clue Land that took me I want to say 17 hours to complete. Maybe fifteen, and then there was there was a gumshoe. That was a trip. Gumshoe rules. I gotta say, that's my <laughs> hands down the most memorable and fun game I played of this series. And I'm not saying it's a great game. I'm just saying it's it's a vibe. It definitely is. Yeah, there's nothing like that. I didn't even know that game existed until I started seeing you play it. It kind of blew me away. Yeah. It, and then it really blew me away that you were able to make it through with like the, not just the game itself, but like the other physical challenges associated with that game. <laughs> like right before I started, I think even on the last podcast or two ago, I was like, man, I feel, I feel like I'm getting older. I have this constant eye strain after streaming. I'm going to have to start taking breaks. And then, there, and then I'm playing a Zapper game where I have to, like, hyper-focus on the pixels of a screen. Oh, my gosh. And try and just sort of, like, line up this primitive sort of light gun with, you know, my, my CRT. But just the mechanic of just, like, having to, like, look around the screen and basically point at what you want to target rather than do it on a uh, with your hands. Like, do it with your eyes like you would do it in real life. Yeah. It builds up your hand-eye coordination for sure. I just think that I, I like I was saying on my stream. I want to play more. I want somebody to take Contra, and then make it so you can just keep running, and then I can shoot to make Bill Riser jump or shoot the enemies with my gun. <laughs> right, and you can't stop. No. <laughs> yeah, it would just have to be like it would have to be a game where you know you could probably do it with uh, Super Mario Brothers or mm -hmm. like one of those games, like something where even if you had to like take a couple obstacles away, so you could just keep running. It's such a vibe. It's just like the the zapper is the great casualty of retro. I think. I think that it had mm -hmm. so much potential. I mean, there's another game that I I believe I've requested you to do um on the stream. It's called To the Earth. I don't know if you remember me requesting that game. I get a lot of requests, Curb. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another Zapper game uh, for you. So if you ever wanted to play more Zapper games, that's definitely one to put on. Okay. Yeah, I want to play them all, actually. I want to play every NES Zapper game at some point. That'd be a cool idea. Oh, man. it's Now Now it's going to be, after the Black Box Challenge, going to be the, the Zapper Challenge. I have so many things I've already committed to. Like, I took some viewer requests... Uh, I, I have to do um, the games that we talked about. You know, I was, uh, I still want to speed run Contra some more uh, to get a better time. So I don't know. Uh, starting to feel like work. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. Right? So Austin, you, you stream yep. a couple days a week? I sure do. Yeah, I've been streaming Tuesdays and Fridays for quite a while. Uh, I was streaming three days a week before we moved into this house. I was doing music streams one day a week. Wow. And... There's just a lot of challenges uh, with the new space and a lot of things that I wanted to improve. So they've been on kind of a hiatus, but streaming games two days a week right now. Right. So like, I definitely want to talk, uh, I want to, I want to get back to the um, streaming music uh, for, and, and like gaming music as well. Uh, I want to get back to that. Um, maybe we should take a step even further back though. Um, do you remember what the first video game you played was? Uh, it was honestly, it was 
like home console video game, it was definitely Super Mario Bros. Duck Hunt at my friend Michael's house. Ah, uh, the dual cartridge. I used to own that as a kid. Yes. Yeah, I didn't own an NES. Uh, my first console was the SNES. Right. But first game that I played, like not in an arcade, was definitely that. Yeah. I, I one of my first for sure. I I played a few like uh, Vic Twenty and T- like TRS eighty games at different uh, friends and relatives places. And I probably had played, you know, Pac-Man or one of those, like, early arcade games. But, uh, yeah, SMB1 is the first game that I really sort of got, you know, as a thing where, like, oh, wow, this is something that I could come back to and get better at and uh, I I don't get sick of this. And it's it's not just trivial. I was horrendous. I mean, we all were. (laughs) No, like, (laughs) my friend Michael thought it would be funny to not tell me how to play the game Uh and i was so i had i lacked any intuition Uh about video games so Uh i didn't think that being able to jump was necessarily a given you know so i would start moving to the right and the first goomba would come along and i didn't know how to jump right and i don't know how i couldn't figure it out i guess you know i was like four Uh and so i would run back try to run back to the left and run away from the goomba and the screen (laughs) scrolls behind you and you're stuck and then he would just slowly get me and my friend Michael thought that was so funny that there was no way he was going to tell me how to jump. He was just going to let that happen to Luigi every time, and then he got to play the game. <laughs> wow. It's it's so funny how kids treat video games. Like, you know, as adults, I, I, th- I feel like we get hung up on achievements and progress and completion. Right. You know, just like checking boxes, right? Right. But kids just like... You know, I, I watch my nephews who are five and eight, uh, actually, like, soon to be, like, six and ten, six and nine. But uh, they just play, they, like, they would play Super Mario Maker, and they they just, like, put sprites everywhere. Like, not with the intention that you would play this and, like, somebody would play it and win. It's just sort of like, right. here's my story. Here's my, like, finger painting sort of experience yeah. of gaming it's like they have the intuitiveness of drawing on a wall with crayons for as far as placing sprites pretty much right and no inhibitions <laughs> or limitations like oh well nobody would play this or oh I, I shouldn't do this or oh this isn't aesthetic it's just pure creativity yeah 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 it's it's and it's funny when you see games that are basically like an adult trying to reclaim that like that sort of Pablo Picasso vibe where like he's just trying to paint like a child. Like and, and Katamari is sort of like the best example I could think of that. That's a good example. You know, that game should not make any sense. It's like, well, <laughs> you've created this world and now we're just gonna roll it all up into a big ball and, <laughs> and just turn it into a star. <laughs> yeah, the whole game is just kind of like a feeling and an experience yeah. and it's not it's less of it, a game. It's, it's a vibe. Yeah. The, all of Katam, all the Katamari games are nothing but a big old vibe. Right. Right. Before that was the hot thing to say. That's what they were going for. Totally. Totally. <laughs> um, I would say the same thing about WarioWare. I, I, I didn't play WarioWare until last year. Oh, man. It's just so, like, so good. random and silly. Great party game. Oh, the yeah. one on the Wii. Yeah. We had so many side-splitting nights. <laughs> just one Wii remote. You know, you just need one Wii remote, no nunchuck. Yeah. Just kind of pass it around, people talking, bouncing around the living room or whatever. So casual. Everybody gets to laugh, even if only one person's playing the game. So good. Yeah, it's not, like not about being good. It's just no. about, you know, it being interesting, you know? Silly. It's just being silly, yeah. and that's, yeah, that's the point. Everyone wins and no one wins. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> so were there games that, like, later on, 
uh, as you, you know, maybe got a little more skill and more experience, were there games that you uh, really loved that have sort of stuck with you since uh, childhood? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I have a very strong uh, kind of pull towards certain games. Uh, it's it's part of like how I measure time yeah. and like what was going on in certain parts of life, which is really cool. So those games get really connected to a lot of those other memories that aren't necessarily directly connected to the game themselves. Right, right. Um, so it's, it's a pretty powerful, pretty powerful feeling to revisit some of those things. Uh, the first video game I owned was the Super Mario World plus uh, All-Stars cartridge for Ooh, SNES. Nice. And I remember just kind of bouncing around all those games. I was terrible at them, never got very far in any of them. Mm. But it was just really cool to be able to like sit in my room and play them all by myself. Mm-hmm. And then later on, things like really clicked during the N64 era. Like I was getting a little bit older. Oh. I started seeing games that could like really kind of like tell a story and pull me into like a world. And that kind of blew my mind. Uh, and I got kind of hooked on that feeling. Yeah, I think I think I know where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think I'm getting a vibe on that too. Yeah. Excellent. Several games. Yeah. But that's great. Yeah. So do you, do you, like, you know, your your most memorable console sort of. Uh, would you say it's the N64 or the SNES or? It's tough. You know, it, it, they feel like different chapters. Yeah. You know, the first chapter was the Super Nintendo. Right. That's and good there's kind of this innocence and power to that, you know, just kind of like discovering games and not really having any kind of loyalty to like a franchise or a, a console family. It was just like, oh, well, this is the, this is the console that I have. And yeah. these are the games that my mom buys for me and decides that I might like. And I, these are what I have to choose from, you know, and I just kind of make do and see what happens. And that, that had its own kind of power to it, yeah. um, kind of innocence, you know, and then things like, you know, later on when I'm playing in 64, you start to have more of like an opinion, more of a, a preference about things. Uh-huh. And then there's the excitement of like, oh, I know about this game because of my friend or because of TV or because of this magazine. And I know about this game, even though I've never played it, and I want it. And so there's this excitement of, like, building up to finally getting that game, you know, and that was, like, a new experience. Like, oh, maybe for my birthday, I'll get this game that I know about but haven't seen yet. Man, um, I, I, you're hitting all my sort of nostalgia points, too. Like, Yeah, and that was that was a big deal. And then as I got into, like, my tween and early teen years... Uh, there was kind of another evolution and I discovered RPGs and the PlayStation. And then it was like, wow, okay, this is like a book. You know, there's so much text and dialogue (laughs) and there's characters Uh and the story develops over time and there's like a lot going on here. And that was where music was starting to hit me really hard too in a different way. Yeah, it's hard to say one console. It's hard to give the gold medal to one. I I, I see where you're going though. It's sort of like, uh, you know, as you get older, you have different experiences with games from them just being a funny sort of one one to five minute amusement in an afternoon to, you know, something you would sort of curl up right. with like a like a good book. Yeah, I guess I guess I got very serious about games pretty early on. Uh-huh. Um, you know, like I I was a kind of a competitive kid, so if it was a multiplayer game, I wanted to be good at it and I wanted to win, even though I didn't always. Yeah. Um, and then you know, as I got into more single player stuff where there's all this things going on and things you can get pulled into it's like wow this is this is what i want i don't want to just like casually play a game i want to like get immersed and sucked in 
do you feel like you have more excitement anticipating buying a game or is the excitement even more when you have the game in your possession and play it? Uh, I don't know. It's that, that feeling isn't the same now as you know, when you're a kid, cause now like between just being older and having, you know, like dispensable income and access that we do in today's day and age, hmm. uh, you just know about so many more games. So it's hard to have that really powerful feeling about one particular game ahead of its release, unless it's just like your favorite franchise or something that's been rumored for a long time or something like that. It's got some kind of mythos around it. But when you're a kid, it kind of was like there was only one game, you know, like you didn't know about every single game. You maybe knew about like a dozen and there was just that one game that was like off in the distance, you know, glowing in the sky. And it's like, that's the one. I got to get that one game. So were there any examples of games uh, that fit that? Uh, back in the day, it was probably, I think I probably felt that the most strongly with the second generation of Pokemon games. Oh. Because Pokemon was huge. I was at the perfect age when it came out. We were completely immersed into the first generation of Pokemon. Uh, and so after being like indoctrinated into that fandom so completely, mm. you know, we had cards and all the media and everything and we were like the perfect age. So then finding out that they were going to make more Pokemon after <laughs> feeling like we had already arrived and there was going to yeah. be more games. That was for clarification. That's a gold and silver, right? Yes. Gold and silver. Okay. Yeah. So that was, that was a pretty huge moment. That was a fever pitch. Wow. Nice. Yeah. I, I want to ask, like, at uh, what point during this did you, like, because you're a musician as well. Yes. Uh, I'd love to know at what point that started. Was that sort of going in parallel with your uh, gaming interests? And was there any sort of cross-pollination there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even though I didn't realize it right away. So I started playing games when I was like four or five. And I had games mm. at home by the time I was six and never stopped playing video games at any point in life. I was always consistently playing them, but I didn't have any interest in like participating in music or creating music until I was like 13 or 14. So right. I was playing games for many years leading up to that. And I was always interested in music. I would notice music from time to time. You know, I owned CDs that I liked, I had preferences and everything like that, mm. but I never thought like, oh, it would be neat to play an instrument or sing or anything like that. That didn't occur to me, even though my dad is a musician. My dad's a drummer. Oh, wow. Ooh. And, you know, growing up, I would bang on his drums sometimes and that was a thing, but yep. I was never like serious about it or trying to learn anything. I was just having fun. You just wanted to hit sticks on things. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and then... For some reason, it just kind of happened out of nowhere. Uh, I was hanging out with a friend. He uh, he and I used to play Yu-Gi-Oh cards together and skateboard. Uh, and we were like 13. And he just had like a random cheap, you know, first act yeah. or something, strat copy in his, in his room. Classic. And he like walked out of his room to go pee. And I was just curious. I picked up the guitar and I put it across my lap. And I was just kind of like looking at it. And it felt kind of strange. And he came back and he, I heard him coming back in the room and I tried to quickly put it back because I didn't want him to get mad that I was touching it. And he was like, oh, no, no, it's cool. <laughs> he's, he's like, it's cool, but you're holding it the wrong way. And I was like, what? And he, right. and he took the guitar from me and he turned it the other way and handed it back to me wow. because I was holding it left handed yeah. oh, without no. realizing it. 
And so he put it back to me the right way with my right hand plucking and my left hand fretting. And I just kind of felt that for a second. And I was like, this isn't right. And I didn't say anything. I just kind of felt it for a second and then just flipped it back over the other way. (laughs) The way I had it before because it just felt right. And he was like, are you left-handed? And I said, no. And he was like, oh, weird. And then I put the guitar back, you know, and didn't think about it. Right. Uh, Because I'm not left-handed, but spoilers, I play guitar Uh, left-handed. And yeah, I asked my dad for a guitar that Christmas and he was like, so excited. Uh, I bet he would be. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And the rest is kind of history at this point. But uh, to answer your question about the cross pollination, uh, it it was very interesting during my early musician years because I was completely self-taught. I didn't like start taking lessons right away or anything. I was completely self-taught, just messing around in my bedroom. And I started to realize that my, that playing video games and listening to their music for years before that was kind of laying this kind of like foundation of like not just like repertoire but also just like concepts of like you know different types of cadences and progressions and things like that so when i finally did go to school for music and started learning music theory dots just started connecting in my head and i i vividly remember being in a in a theory class and learning about neapolitan chords and this teacher played the example Mm -hmm. and as soon as they played the example of a use of like a neapolitan chord and a cadence and like a minor key, I was just, I just like said out loud to myself, Mad Monster Mansion. Wow. <laughs> you know, and like connected it with this song from Banjo-Kazooie. And it's like, as I went along, all these different games taught me like some of these kind of like music theory concepts that I could attach examples to. And it was a wild ride for a while. I love that. And and I, I uh, you know, first thing I want to say is my dad had the opposite uh, reaction when I said I wanted a guitar. He was like, oh God. He's going to end up like I did. <laughs> but uh, but also, yeah, I feel like, you know, as a musician, composer, I take so much of my inspiration from video game music. And since I was a kid, sure. like, I just love the Super Mario Brothers song. And I, I'm like, what is the rhythm of that underground level in, in Super Mario Brothers? I'm like, oh, it's in three. And like, what is that garbage at the end of the uh, of of the loop? <laughs> garbage. And uh, and now like, it's become like canon. Like, I, I have you seen that Adam mm-hmm. Neely video where he's talking about how like, uh, video game music is the new like jazz sort of like standards kind of thing. Yes, I, I loved that video actually. I believe it or not, got a heads up about that video before it came out because one of the people he interviewed in that video is a good friend of mine and a board member for VGMCon. Wow. Um, so nice. he's a, he's a Ludo musicologist. So he has a, a doctorate in the study of video game music. Is that was, is that Ludo musicologist? Is that a- Ludo musicology, the study of video game music? Yeah. Scholarly study. Wow. There's an official term for that. That's amazing. Yeah. Look how far we've come. <laughs> but yeah, that's an, that's an incredible video. I love how much, he took the time to kind of solidify that, hey, this is like a real cultural thing. This is not a fad, you know, just just how it probably was thought of back in the day with jazz or whatever. You know, people probably thought it would blow over and yeah. look at it now. So, yeah, really, really cool to see video game music getting more validation as we go along. It, yeah, it's just music, right? Like any other form of music. Yeah. And right. the music that I think we are inspired and, and that that. The music that narrates our lives, mm-hmm. I think, is just the music that we let into our lives. And if you play a lot of video games, well, it makes 
absolute sense that that music will become meaningful to you at some point. Right. I always just think think of like I'm I'm forever humming old NES video game music that I've known since I was a kid. There's like the Bionic Commando soundtrack, for example. Like there's so many great tunes. Like all that Capcom stuff is just incredible. You know, like I to me it's it's like um to to arrange a string quartet is almost like to arrange the the music on an NES chip. Sure. You know? So so I don't know. I think it's I think it's meaningful. I think it's powerful. And um you've sort of carried that through your life as as sort of a you know a one two punch combo of video games and music. telling me at some point that you were you were i mean you're telling me uh, telling us on the show uh earlier that you were streaming music at one point on twitch yeah how mm-hmm. did that start uh well i obviously I, I went to school for music i mentioned that okay yeah and from the time that i decided to go to school for music it was a decision of mine that i wanted to try to make a career in music somehow mm-hmm. uh you know pretty much in any form that it might take whether it was you know, playing in bands or being a session musician, right? Video, video game composer, arranger, whatever. Uh-huh. What school um, did you go to? Uh, I went to a school that's actually closed now, called McNally Smith College of Music. Uh, uh-huh. It was in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, it was a really cool experience. A lot of really amazing, talented teachers learned a lot of do's and don'ts from both faculty and peers. Right, and it was it was a pretty pretty novel experience that not a lot of people got to experience. It was very small school and obviously it's not around anymore. So Uh that's kind of sad too. Uh Um, But yeah, that's that's where I went to school and I was walking out of the doors trying to figure out, okay, how do I, you know, how do I make a career in this? So, you know, video games was always a hobby. It's always kind of my number one hobby, Mm. but I didn't see, I didn't see music as a hobby. I was like, okay, well, this is going to be, this is going to be my career. So I'm going to be practicing every day. Mm. I'm going to be involved in things. I'm going to try to figure out ways to, you know, generate income by doing this. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be my career path. So I, I didn't get into streaming until 2020 during the height of the pandemic. Uh, And it was, it was also out of being relocated from Minnesota to Texas. Oh, wow. Both both by choice and for my wife's job. Right. Um, so we were in a completely new place and all of our friends were still back in Minnesota. So it was also a way for me to kind of stay connected to those people to start yeah. streaming. So I, I didn't really have a way to connect with anybody, uh, but it was a convenient way to connect with them specifically. Kind of a home away from home. Yeah. So I was streaming streaming games and I always thought it would be cool to incorporate music into the streams somehow. I just uh-huh. didn't really know how to do it and I kind of had to learn how streaming worked, what was possible. Yeah. And after like a year of doing some very basic kind of video game streaming, I felt like I had enough knowledge to attempt the music thing. Because I had seen other people do it and had, you know, watched a few people here and there. Uh-huh. 
uh-huh. and just kind of started trying my hand at it. You know, it's like, well, I'm in a video game band. I want more people to know that we exist. Uh, I want to play music. I don't find myself practicing as much as I want to. Right. Um, and I have all these great friends in the video game music scene that are streaming their stuff and, uh-huh. you know, they're taking requests and doing fun medleys and all kinds of stuff like that. And it's like, I could do that. Yeah. So I just started messing around That's and great. seeing what I could do. <laughs> and it was never like a super structured thing uh-huh. and it was never, you know, popping off or anything like that, but it was yeah, a right. way for me to have kind of like a structured practice time and connect with people and jam out a little bit. Sometimes fun little new ideas would happen and with the looper or something. So, so what would that look like? Are you are you playing along with existing music? Are you are you sort of recreating it from scratch using using the tools you have, or just sort of like I the way I did it, just so you know, is I would just take requests and I'd just try and play along with it. <laughs> it didn't go mm-hmm. so well. Some songs are easier than others, but uh, sure, people would always request, you know. Something that was like, you know, had had some like poly time signature and just, you of know, course. you know, because v- music video game, video game music is supposed to be exciting and exciting usually means surprising. Surprising usually mm-hmm. means you're not going to just get you in. You can't wing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I want to know, like, so the reason I ask is like, I want to know how you did it and what you did. And, and I guess you were in a video game band. Uh, yes, still am. Um do you want to talk about so, that for first or? or, or... Uh, well, I'll, I'll answer your question about how the streams work really okay. quick. Uh, so basically there's a, there's a plugin that you can run in OBS mm-hmm. that will help connect another instance of the same plugin in whatever DAW you're using. So really? the, the, v, the VST will like talk to itself and basically all of your, your DAW channels will get piped into OBS as a, as a sound source. Yeah. So I'd run, I'd just set up my DAW with like whatever audio I was playing along with and mm-hmm. then inputs for the instruments that I was using and a talkback mic and everything like that. Try to balance it as best as I can. Yep. And then it's all just getting piped into one fader in OBS. And that's not, you know, I'm not saying that's like a definitive or ideal way to do it. Right. There's a lot of different ways you could do it, but that's the way that I did it because I'm kind of an analog guy. Oh, yeah. I've never had any success with any type of like virtual audio cables or digital mixing software or anything like that. I'm more sure. of like, okay, I'm going to plug this into this physical device and now I know where it's going because I can trace the wire and that kind of thing. Hands on so, kind of guy. Gotcha. That's how I that's how I set it up. And yeah, I just had uh, keyboards and guitar and bass because uh, those are like the three instruments that I'm the best at. <laughs> okay. And uh, I was playing along with original video game audio in most cases, mm. uh, but I would also play along with some of my band's tracks as well. That's so cool. I, <laughs> I mean, that, that's that definitely solves the problem that I had, which which was everything would just constantly be chasing its tail, uh, trying to trying to get things to sync up. Cause right. I was right, just yeah. playing along with YouTube videos or with the mm-hmm. actual game audio. Somebody would redeem play along with whatever music is, and this is usually right. RPGs. So I'd just be like, all right, I got my guitar right here, just so happens. And, you know, I tried to sort of pinpoint like, okay, how much latency do I need to make it sound like I'm playing in time with right. the audio capture? And the problem is it's a moving target. Yeah, it's a nightmare. So, you know, if I had a DAW, you're probably thinking, are you talking about like ASIO for all that sort of plugin sort of thing? Or is, is there a specific uh, other one? 
yes, I am using ASIO for all, yeah. but also the, the DAW I use is Reaper. So okay. the, the plugin is called Restream, R-E-A, Stream. Uh, I fam- I'm familiar with the Reaper plugins, yeah. 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 Uh, and OBS supports VSTs, so you just run Restream in uh, OBS as well, and then you put it in a track on Reaper, and one is the transmitter and one's the receiver. That's that's so straightforward and uh, yeah, it's amazing that it works. Yeah, because I, I what I would end up doing is just moving over to my Mac because I was running a dual boot Hackintosh at the time, so I just reboot on the Mac side, and what I would use is Loopback for Mac, which just makes like unlimited virtual sound cards, no latency. Oh, wow. That's what I'm actually using to record the podcast. Cool. So to record your your sort of scratch Discord audio. It just makes it so easy, but I could never get it to work on a PC. So I definitely have to try Restream if I ever try and do it again. Yeah, shout-outs to Restream. Heck yeah. So uh, Video Game Band, let's talk about that. Okay, sure. When did that start? It started actually while I was in college mm-hmm. in like 2000, like late 2009, early 2010. So at the college that I went to, if you were a performance department major, which I was, you know, they had, uh, they had departments for performance where you're, you know, you're in the guitar department or you're in the bass department, you're in the drum department, et cetera. Yeah. And then they also had non-performance departments where you're like music business, music production, uh, composition and songwriting, that kind of stuff. Right. Recording engineers. So if you were in a performance department and you were playing an instrument, uh, you were required to be in an ensemble and they had these student ensembles that you could sign up for Mm -hmm. various genres and things like that. You know, you could be in jazz ensemble, you could be in rock ensemble, you could be in Latin ensemble, all that kind of stuff. And you had to be in one. The purpose of it was they wanted you to get used to the audition process, you know? Oh, that makes sense. Uh, So you'd pick one that you wanted to audition for and they'd deliver you the music that was for the audition and you were expected to prepare it. You'd come and you'd have to, you know, audition in front of a panel. It was supposed to be you know, nerve wracking, make you nervous and that type of thing. They wanted to challenge you in that way. Uh And then, you know, eventually you would get accepted into one because they weren't super mean about it. They just wanted to put you through the ringer. And then you would perform, you'd get together, you know, during your class once a week or whatever it was, and you'd rehearse material. And then your midterm and your final was a gig where they would book you at a venue locally. Like a local venue. Yeah, and you'd have to show up with your gear. You'd have to be on time. You'd have to load in. You'd have to do a sound check. And then you'd do a performance, and you would get graded on how well you performed the material. And that was like part of the coursework in the curriculum for these uh, performance majors. And so uh, me being me, I didn't want to be in any of the pre-existing ones. You know, I was not a jazz person. I'm still not a jazz person. So I definitely wasn't going to go anywhere near that. And then, you know, you have like three or four different rock ensembles. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't want to like compete with a bunch of guitar players. I want, you know, like I'd be in a rock ensemble if I was the only guitar player or one of two. Yeah. And it was like my friend. But, you know, I was kind of leery of that. I was being really picky. Uh Uh-huh. And I was kind of nervous that if I didn't audition for one of these ensembles, I was just going to get randomly placed into one that I really didn't want to be in. Yeah, that makes sense. But I heard about this other person, some friend or something was like, hey, did you know that there's a Final Fantasy ensemble? And I was like, excuse me? It begins. (laughs) Because that was like my favorite video game music at the time and still probably some of my favorite video game music of all time, Nobu Uematsu. It's excellent. Excellent. And I was like, 
I was like, okay, I'll audition for the Final Fantasy Ensemble. And so I like figure out who's in charge of it, you know, who's the teacher, who's in it or whatever. And I start talking to people and sending emails and they're like, oh, well, this is a creative ensemble. This is curated by a specific student and they have the people that they want in it. You can't just like audition for this ensemble. And I was like, oh, well, that sucks. And they were like, but you could do your own. And I was like, oh, and so they didn't advertise this to the performance majors. This was intended to be for composition and songwriting majors right? so that they could like form a band to play music that they wrote. Mm-hmm. So like maybe they don't play an instrument mm-hmm. very well, but mm-hmm. they could basically go through the process of like, okay, I'm a songwriter. I want to hire a band to go into the studio and record my music. So they created this creative ensemble platform for those people. But they were willing to let performance department people start one too. They just didn't really advertise it. Yeah. So I was like, okay, what if I started a video game ensemble and I could just find some friends to play video game music with me for fun and for a grade <laughs> uh, so that we don't have to be in jazz ensemble or Latin ensemble or whatever. And so I like ground, round up a group of people to complete a band and they were like, yeah, that sounds fun. Uh, and that was where it started. It started as a school coursework thing. Right. And after we did our midterm and final shows and had so much fun and people responded so well to it, I was like, hey, guys, you know, semester's over. We don't have to do this anymore. We're going to be in a different ensemble next semester. But do you guys want to keep doing this outside of school and be a band? And everyone was like, hell yeah. And that's when Do a Barrel Roll was born. The band's called Do a Barrel Roll. Do a Barrel Roll. <laughs> yeah. That's just iconic. That's great. That's icing on the cake right there. I, I really like that story because to me, it's like if they want to simulate the process of getting employment as a performing musician, it feels like if I wanted to do that as someone who's who would be instantly booted out of any music school, uh, <laughs> I would just get some people together and form a band. Like I, right. I think I've auditioned once for a gig. <laughs> right. And that process was more familiar to me than auditioning for something as well. Like I kind of was used to being a leader and a band former. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure they were excited when, when you mentioned it too. It's like, well, here's someone who takes the initiative and like they, they, they would never have to audition anyway. So go for it. Right. And the dire- the teacher who was the director assigned to it loved it, too, because he didn't have to do anything. He just showed up and like read a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost like a classroom, like Battle of the Bands almost. Yeah. <laughs> so what was some of the uh, what's some of the repertoire that th- the band sort of got into and has retained over the years? Uh, well, OK, there's not a whole lot of repertoire that still remains okay. from those days. Yeah. Uh, that was in like 2010, and we've gone through a bunch of different permutations and changes and evolutions since then. Okay. But when we first started, this was also kind of the nature of the class and what they wanted to be able to quantify and measure things. I wrote out everything. So like music notation. I had to write out every single person's part and deliver them a hard copy of their part. Wow. And I was arranging these like super crazy medleys and things uh-huh. like that. And it was kind of like a progressive rock type of instrumentation and outfit. We had three guitar players and we had two keyboard players and then bass, drums, and electric violin. So it was an eight piece band and we're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, we could do four part harmonies with the guitars and the violin. Yeah. 
you know, dueling synths and all kinds of stuff like that. We could have all kinds of different like synthesized instruments happening at the same time. So early on, we were playing one of the very first. I remember the very first thing that we ever played together uh, in the ensemble space before we were even a band was the Final Fantasy V battle theme. Cool. I don't know why I picked that, but it's a good choice. uh, We had a Final Fantasy V medley that included that battle theme that was a, a staple of our repertoire. Uh, for the entire time we were that band, uh-huh. we had a we had an a, like a sixteen eighteen minute Mario Kart sixty four medley. Oh wow, that's a long that time. that took people through the kind of like an arc of play sitting down to play the game. Um, uh-huh. Oh, and I didn't mention this either, but we all the the ninth member of the band uh, was an iPad <laughs> that had a soundboard on it. That had a bunch of sampled sounds and like voice clips and stuff from video games. And one of the keyboard players would trigger those as well as part of like the arrangement. Like they were in the sheet music. That's amazing. That's That's amazing. So the Mario Kart 64 medley, the very first thing that would happen was the keyboard player would hit a button on this iPad. And it would play the like revving engine sound that plays when you start up the game. Oh. Um, And then we would play the title theme from the game. And we'd play through that a couple of times. And then he would play the the transition sound where it's like, and then we'd play the ding, 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 player yes. select. Uh, and yes. like, we'd have the voice clips in there of Mario going, select map, and all that stuff. <laughs> wow. And we would just jam on that for a little bit. And then we'd play like Luigi Raceway. And then we'd like speed up for the third lap. And then we'd play the little thing that plays when somebody wins the race and all that kind of stuff. And we'd play the race results theme that's in like 11. Uh, that one's a vibe. Yeah, I love that tune. Is that the doom 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 doom? Yep. Yeah, just a C seven sus to a C seven, and then it goes to the four for a little bit. So good. So so good. Yeah, it's it's so 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 efficient of you know being able to just keep the energy of a racing game going without having to be a three minute tune or whatever, and you could. Just have mm-hmm. that 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 sort of uh, odd time signature loop just going and and not not need to do much with it and just sort of sit on that sort of two chord thing. I always thought it was crazy with that tune because the the actual full loop of it, the amount of time for it that it takes before it actually starts repeating itself, is a pretty significant length of time. But you're usually only on that screen for like three seconds. You know, yeah. the, the coins count up the points and, you know, everybody gets their points and it goes and you go to the next race, you know, and you might be on that screen for like 10 seconds. But the loop is like almost two minutes long. So it's interesting how that happened. Same with Mario Kart 8, that race results loop. Yeah. Equally excellent. Yeah. And most people never hear it. There's a lot of video, that could be its own podcast of like video game music songs that loop way too long for where they put them in the game. <laughs> yeah. Way too much music. <laughs> and everybody misses out. Too much work yeah. for such a small, you know, small section of the game. Almost. It feels it feels that way, but you know, I obviously, you know, Nintendo and them put put definitely some work into their games and, and a lot of love into it and it shows. Sometimes you just waste too you waste all your effort on the title screen theme and you forget to make a good game. <laughs> yeah. True. I, I know that Solstice is a is a good a very good game, beloved by a lot of people, but to me, it just looks miserable to play. But the ti- oh, it's pretty miserable to play. I own the game. <laughs> the title screen theme, holy shit! Yes, it's transcendent. <laughs> I think I showed it to you. You were kind of yeah. That so- could be a to- that could be a whole podcast too. Like game soundtracks mm-hmm. that rule, but the game sucks. Totally. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, you'll have to come on for that one. That's that's happening. I think there's like only two tracks to the Solstice game. Yeah. That one and the main music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, side note, when we were just sort of uh, riffing on like, okay, we need a theme song. Uh, what should it? I'm like, I can just write one. Just tell me, tell me, give me some inspiration. And he sends me oh, the fucking Solstice theme music. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was a vibe. I, what can I say? <laughs> it's like, it, well, it's it, it's like when I get John Williams as the temp music in a film score. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that. I mean, I feel like that probably happens just about every time. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. But uh it's a great tune and it, it definitely got the creative juices flowing when I was writing this little theme ditty. Um there so you go. so did you guys uh do any touring, play play cons over the years? That sort of thing? Or Yeah. Uh so in the early days of uh Dabber, as we call ourselves for short, uh-huh. um we played some local shows, but we didn't we didn't do a ton. And I wasn't really aware of conventions right away. That wasn't right. something that I knew about. Right. Uh, it was something that I had to discover and kind of be told about. So you were just playing club gigs? Yeah. Yeah, we were just playing at bars, which is super wild. I remember we played at a venue that typically has like metal shows. Nice. Uh, that It's also closed now. It was like a classic venue in St. Paul, Minnesota, Station 4. And uh-huh. one of our first shows was there. And uh, I remember some of the organizers like after the show just kind of like coming up to us just like quiet and wide-eyed and like not necessarily because we were like amazing or anything but they were just they'd never seen anything like that like they recognized the music and they Mm -hmm. never would have thought they would have heard it in their venue kind of thing and they were just like guys that was like weird and amazing i i I don't know that was wild (laughs) It, it reminds me of the time i saw the amazing spider band play um they were a band from winnipeg uh, one of my favorite stories of Canadian music, a band from Winnipeg, just north of the border from uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, they did all the original, like, not the, they did the theme, but mostly just like the background, like, cues from the original Spider-Man cartoon. Oh, wow. And they just play club gigs. and That's so cool. Yeah. And they actually got in touch with the guy who wrote all of those original uh, cues and cool. they, they were asking permission to record to record a record. And he was like, I will come from Australia and bring my band and we can record it together. Dude. Wow. <laughs> That's so killer. It's just funny. Like, you know, all those clubs are just built on original music, you know, maybe local bands, maybe touring acts. But like you mm-hmm. go in there, you're probably not going to recognize every single tune. And then here's a video game band playing every song from this game that you've played for hundreds of hours. Yeah, that actually happened to us a lot where we would show up and we would play and people would have no idea that the music we were playing was from video games. Oh, really? Yeah, we we didn't really... I didn't spend a lot of time on the microphone. Mm. Um, I hadn't like kind of fully developed my (laughs) public-facing personality yet. Like I never had problems with stage fright or whatever, but I hadn't really gotten super adept at kind of like working a crowd and talking to people. So I would just kind of say like goofy stuff between songs and, you know, I wouldn't be like, this is the, uh, this is the title theme from Mario Kart 64 by Kenta Nagata. You know, I didn't do anything like that. Uh-huh. I'd just be like, uh, this one's, this one's got uh, Donovan on the guitar over there. Give it up for Donovan, you know, and then we play a song. Right. So I didn't really spend a lot of time 
letting people know what was going on. I just assumed people either got it or they didn't. Yeah. So you'd have some random person come up to us afterwards and be like, oh, you guys were incredible. That was awesome. And we think, oh, wow, this random guy knows this music. How cool is that? You know, and we talked to him for a couple minutes and then we'd realize, oh, this guy thinks that we wrote all these songs. And he thinks that we're an original band. And we'd have to like let him down and be like, yeah, we didn't, we're a cover band. These, these songs are from video games. And it was like, we told him that he was adopted. Uh, and he, they, <laughs> they would get kind of confused and deflated and they were like, wait, I don't know if I like this anymore. Oh no. <laughs> You guys are nerds. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, sometimes they didn't care, but that happened That happened a lot, actually. Wow. But another thing that we did in the early days to kind of facilitate that was we would actually set up a projector and have the audience play video games while we played the show. Now, that's cool. Yeah. That's that, That's sort of, that's an easy sell, I think, to... Yeah. 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 And that's obviously a pretty big attract, like, to, like, walk into a bar. Like, you're not expecting to see people playing Mario Kart 64 on a on an eight foot screen. Right. So we had some fun with that. We would try to kind of like, we, we tried to get a little more fancy with it as the years went on, um, which became just too much of a nightmare. And that was kind of what led to the first transformation and evolution of the band, um, which was actually right around the time that I got involved with what is now VGM con. So I, maybe I can use this as a segue. Um, <laughs> you're doing you're doing all the hard work for us. This is great. <laughs> Dang, man! Like we we were probably going to come up with something clever, but you've done the clever work for us. <laughs> uh, we we got tipped off to a local event that was a convention, and they were not music centric at all. They were also not video game centric at all. They were just mm. kind of like a general nerd and sci fi anything goes type of convention. Mm. Mm. But they had a convention within a convention, I guess you'd say, where they hosted some musical acts and we were not like anything that they would typically have, but we managed to get in and we brought like an extra guy with us to run the video games. And so we had like a couple of N64s on the ground in the front row and maybe even like a super Nintendo. I don't remember. And we had all these analog composite switchers with like physical buttons on them. Cool. And we would set up, like Mario Kart 64, Star Fox 64, Smash Bros. And he would know based on our set list, like what game should be on the big screen. But all the games were going on like little TVs in the front. So people could just play. And then he would change which one was like the visualization for the audience that was like most representative of what we were playing. Right. Uh, And that was kind of like as far as we took that idea. And we're like, we're wearing costumes. We're, We're like in character. We each had like an alias and like a backstory that I like forced everybody to come up with. It was, it was a lot. Seems like and a lot of work. <laughs> most, people, most, most people weren't super into it and I was just kind of strong arming everybody right. and convincing them that it was cool. And it all kind of culminated actually in 2014 when we landed a gig at an event called Gamers Rhapsody in St. Paul. Okay. And it was the first year the event ever existed, and we ended up finding out that it was actually a school project for the organizer. The organizer was in an event planning program at their college. Oh, wow. And this was kind of like similarly to how we had to play a gig for our final. Uh, he had to plan an event for like a, a midterm or a final or something like that. And he chose to, to try to run a video game convention because that was something he was passionate about. Because there's not any video game conventions in Minnesota, really, at all. Right. So he was like, I want to go to a video game convention, and there aren't any around here, so I'm going to start one. And because he's a 
musician. He wanted to have music at the event, and he just happened to go to the International Game Developers Association meetup mm -hmm. to try to court uh, some indie game developers mm. to come and showcase their games at his event. Right. And one of my friends was there because he's a game composer and audio designer. And when the guy said he wanted bands, we were the first people that he thought of because we were pretty much the only video game band that he knows yeah. of. So he, he got <laughs> us connected. We came and we set up our video games and we played a show uh, at Gamers Rhapsody. And I got to meet the organizer, Thomas, uh, after the show. Uh -huh. And we kind of hit it off. And he, after the event, was kind of like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm starting to work on another one of these. I'm going to do this again. We're going to do Gamers Rhapsody 2. And I was wondering if you might be interested in, of course, bringing your band back, but also if you might be interested on, you know, helping me with some of the decision making and kind of organizational stuff with this event. And I said, sure. And that evolved over time. And Gamers Rhapsody eventually got rebranded to VGMCon. And that's actually how I got involved with the event to begin with was through my video game band. That's, uh, nice. it's, it's sort of like all of your worlds are colliding and you basically made your own, uh, made your own world of music and gaming uh, all in one. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. Like when it comes to decision-making, like when you're looking for a musical act for a convention, like the jam con, like, what do you look for? Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of challenging, but it's, it's also pretty easy. So, I mean, nowadays we just have an application process. So people throw their application in the hat and I get to go through them all. Mm. And when I'm going through them, uh, I'm pretty much looking for kind of a checklist of things. Uh, you know, number one is have they performed for us before? And, you know, if so, like, how did that go? Uh, did people seem to like it? Right. Did, were they, you know, were they good communicators? Were they on time? You know, kind of track record type stuff. Yeah. And then also we try to keep things varied from year to year. You know, we try not to have too many of the same people. Sure. And that kind of thing. Uh, but also I'm, I'm just looking for somebody who kind of like fulfills a, a role, I guess, uh, you know, because my job is to kind of create like an arc of, right. of music, like, right. you know, yeah. have a consistent kind of shift in energy level from the beginning of the day to the end of the day and represent lots of different styles of music. How many hours over the weekend are you, like, are you curating with live video game music? It must be a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's wall to wall every day. So our convention this year is going to open up and close earlier and later than it ever has before. Mm -hmm. And there's, literally wall-to-wall -wall music the entire time. So our event will open at 1 p.m. on Friday. Music will start at 1 p.m. Uh, and it'll go till like, you know, 2 in the morning. And then Saturday, we're going to open up at 9. Music starts at like 9.45 and goes to like 2 in the morning. Uh, Sunday, we're going to open up at 9 again. Goes from like 9.45 until we close at around 5 p.m. So it's wall-to-wall -wall music on two different stages. It's over over 60 musical acts performing throughout the weekend. Seems like a lot of value for, for one weekend of con. Like we think so. Constant, amazing, yeah. For sure. We think so. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously you can't see everything, which is part right. of the, the fun and the, the challenge of a, going to a, a great convention. You know, you can't see everything at once and you have mm -hmm. to pick and choose. But yeah, we want people to have choices in the early days 
we didn't we didn't have that luxury. You know, we were lucky to fill the whole schedule with anything. And that had its own novelty, I guess, to get to see everything. But we're past those days now. <laughs> for someone who's never really attended a, uh, a convention like this, for a little bit of a background, all of my experience in conventions are anime and video game conventions in Florida. Sure. So for those who have never really attended a convention like this, you know, other than the bands performing, you know, wall to wall constantly, what can someone expect from an event like this? Um, well, luckily, I will say that, you know, maybe when we started doing this, it was less common. But now, thankfully, there are a lot more events similar to us that do kind of like the indoor music festival type thing, mm -hmm. which is great. But where we're trying to differentiate, I suppose, is in addition to just being a big party and meetup like most conventions are, we're also trying to offer more kind of constructive, enriching content as well like in our panel spaces. So we try to bring in people who are connected to the industry, whether they are, you know, video editors or composers or, you know, YouTubers uh, in the video game music space, you know, people who can come in and kind of explain how they got to where they are, how they do what they do and how other people might be able to do the same thing if they are aspiring, aspiring to similar goals. Right. Um, so that's always been a big goal for us is to oh, that's cool. uh, kind of create a networking event as well. You know, like we don't want just people who like video games to come to our event. We want people who are musicians that play instruments to come to our event and meet each other. You know, oh, mm -hmm. wow, I needed a bass player for my band. And I went down to the jam space at VGMCon and I met this really cool bass player, you know, who knows cool tunes or songs that I like or whatever. Uh, we want people who are graphic artists and story writers and all different wings of game development type of people to come to our event and meet each other. Uh, so we're trying to create that kind of an atmosphere as well, in addition to just, hey, come party, enjoy the music, you know, play some games, whatever. So you want to kind of give purpose to the convention, rather, it's just, rather than just a hangout. You, got, you want to give bands and upcoming acts a kind of a venue to grow, you know, if you can. Is yeah. that kind of what you're looking for in this? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, this name was going to come out of somebody's mouth at some point. We have to mention MAGFest. Of course. Obviously, we have learned a lot and emulated a lot from the people at MAGFest. Mm -hmm. And where we're trying to differentiate ourselves in another regard is we want to make sure that we don't get too big. You know, MAGFest is a huge community. It's an amazing event. But a lot of people's main complaint with it is that it's gotten a little too big and it's hard to actually like spend time with people. You know, it's such a mad rush to right. run around and see as many things as you can see. Right. And, you know, it's a lot of people's only chance to see certain people in a year because uh, they live in different states or maybe even countries. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's great to bring people together, but sometimes you don't actually get to spend that quality time. And we've realized that a lot of people are kind of starved for that too. So we're trying to cultivate that as well. We want, we're kind of getting to a point where we might have our first event over a thousand people, uh, which has kind of been our, our standing goal for a few years here. Obviously yep. the, the pandemic kind of slowed that trajectory down. Sure. But we're on track for that possibility this year. And we've had the conversation, you know, at what point do we say, okay, we're going to need to cap attendance. Uh, we're not going to move to a bigger hotel. We're going to stop right here. 
you know, uh, we haven't decided exactly where we would draw that line in the mm-hmm. sand. But that's kind of another thing that's on her our horizon too is keeping that kind of cozy, networkable atmosphere where people can not only meet each other as attendees, but also kind of like bump elbows with the special guests and presenters. Um, you know, we have. Yeah. I'll just call out one particular panelist. Uh, we have this incredible guy named Dr. Jonathan Kresge. He is an audio professional who is not necessarily directly connected to video games, but he's an educator. And he comes in and this guy's going to do five panels at VGM Con. And he'll he'll do a panel about Reaper and like an introductory course on how to learn about this DAW and how to do some of the basics, fundamentals, things like that. He'll do a panel on equalization and teach people how to use an EQ. He'll teach you how to use a compressor. He'll teach you how to use, uh, you know, reverbs and delays and things like that. Right. Uh, really, really useful stuff. Right. And every minute that that guy is not in a panel presenting to people, he's either trying to get out of the room because so many people are asking him questions and he doesn't <laughs> want to say no to anyone, or he's just walking around the event, just meeting people. Amazing. And a lot of these guests do that and are able to do that yeah. because there's not... 20,000 people at our convention. You know, they can just like stop and sit down and talk to somebody for a second. Right. And we really, really like that. And the guests meet each other too, which is cool. We've had some collaborations result because of our event. Oh, cool. So exciting. And, you know, just to clarify, this is not just for uh, music performance. It's you're showcasing uh, people who remix game music and, and cover game music on recording as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Most of the bands that are performing, bands and musical acts, I should say. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a little exclusive to say bands, but I find myself doing that uh, from time to time. Sure. But it's not just bands. Um, but yeah, all the musical acts, uh, we, we, we don't have a hard and fast rule, but we usually shoot for 60% representation of actual music from video games. Okay. Whether it's covers or remixes yep. and what have you. But we have a mix of original music and music inspired by video games as well. I'm so excited to come because, you know, <laughs> you know that I'm a, a musician as well as somebody who likes video games. Um, mm-hmm. Who should I talk to? Like, what should, like, who should I meet when I come there? Is there somebody specific that you're excited about who is, uh, who's performing or who's speaking? I know you talked about Dr. Jonathan Kresge, is it? Yeah, you got to meet John. You got to meet Dr. John for sure. You could pick his brain forever. But yeah, I mean, I'm incredibly privileged because I get to meet all these people who I wouldn't right. other, otherwise get to meet. Like, I, I don't only get to get to interact with them, but I'm kind of forced <laughs> to interact with them because I'm co- coordinating their performance and their, you know, whatever. So I get to meet a lot of people and I'm, I'm very lucky for that. Um, and it's definitely led to some, you know, other opportunities outside of the event, That's which great. I'm extremely thankful for. But as far as like... Are you asking this question, Scoobs, as as Scoobs? Like, who does Scoobs need to meet? I'm or asking just for in me general, because, like, because I, who, I... For you, j- okay. Just so you know, I'm trying to get this Sonic <laughs> Ska record off the ground. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to need a band. Perfect. I'm going to need some advice from other artists. I'm, I might need some gigs. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Well, there's going to be plenty of horn players for you to meet because we have a, a brand new act that is... Uh, locally locally sourced called the multiplayer big band a really talented arranger and composer jesse myers mm. who's based out of minneapolis is putting together a big band to do Excellent. some of his arrangements uh of video game music and most of the horn players he has sourced from the minneapolis st paul area 
but some of them are traveling cool. to the event as well. Nice. Uh, we have two other horn bands playing as well, uh, Downloadable Collective and uh, The Limit Breakers. So you'll get to meet some horn players there too. Love that name. Yeah, I'm a sucker for bands. I'm a sucker for those kind of jazzy, you know, horn player bands like that. Like I was, I was in high school band, and uh, my my uh, school also had a jazz band. So before class, I would come in, and the jazz band was still playing, and then I'd just sit and listen for about ten or so minutes, and then they'd break, and it's mm. like, oh, it's over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, I mean, the the list is just kind of it's kind of overwhelming. There'll be so many horn players to meet. You'll have a lot of drummers to meet for sure. There's definitely some drummers that I want to introduce you to because so I know you're really into That's drums. So great. Yeah, I'm a drum. I'm a drum nerd uh, for sure. Some great guitarists yeah, yeah. too. Yeah, I think we both are. <laughs> and also, there's not just uh, there's not just music, but there's you're gonna have some like uh, casual sort of uh, open tournaments of, of video games as well. Is that part of it? Yes. Yes. So we're really excited because. For the first time, we actually have the entire event space within the hotel. Awesome. The The way this hotel is laid out, it's uh, it's very interesting, actually. It's not it's very asymmetrical and right. kind of scattered. Um, so signage is a, a challenge. But there's this downstairs area that's very popular for people in the area to book for mm. like wedding receptions. So it's almost always booked. Uh-huh. Uh, and we've never had it before. But this year, we do. And it's a huge space, and that's where our gaming is going to be this year. Our gaming sponsor, Highlander Games, uh, does a really great job. It's a just a friend of ours that owns a brick-and-mortar gaming store awesome. in the Twin Cities, doing uh, not just video games, but also you know tabletop, TCG, general anime and nerdy stuff, all that kind of good stuff, board games. I hope Curb's going to come out and represent the podcast with his Mario Kart 8 skills. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There you go. Oh man, uh, <laughs> Friday night sometimes, you know, on Jimmy Chong's channel, you know, we end up playing some uh, Mario Kart and uh, a good chunk of the time, I'm the one kind of spanking everyone a good bit, especially Scoops. Oh, okay. Well, I'll have to play with you guys because I'm pretty good at Mario Let's Kart too. Let's so do it. Let's I, nice. I, mean, I just want to win one race Let's and then it, I'll man. retire. <laughs> you're, prob- you're probably going to catch me hiding out yeah. a little bit in that game room for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Tom does a great job. He comes and basically sets up a pop-up version of his store in the gaming hall and he'll have tons of free play. He hosts a bunch of different tournaments. And luckily, his tournaments are kind of more average attendee focused. You know, he's not running these like super high skill level fighting game Mm. tournaments or Mm. anything like that. Uh, It's more approachable stuff like Mario Kart, things like that. He also does like, you know, after dark type of stuff where he'll do like Jackbox or Cards Against Humanity late at night. It's a really good time. We're also okay, have Tom's starting to speak my language now. <laughs> we have we have some new people coming in this year too that I'm excited about. It's a smaller organization. They're going to set up in kind of a little corner or somewhere in the gaming room, and they're going to be they ha- they're bringing a bunch of Mister oh, yeah yeah machines sure. if you're the familiar FPGA. with those, and uh, they're going to yeah. be they're going to be emulating some very uh, specific classic arcade fighting games um, to kind of show off. Uh, for free play That's and amazing. for tournaments. I've been keeping an eye on the Mr. Project for sure, and there's some there's some exciting stuff that keeps happening.
before I forget, I've been meaning to bring this up, but I, I keep getting distracted. You were talking earlier about having to curate an arc uh, over the weekend of music. And I, I think there's a special theme for this year, is there not? Would you like to talk about that? There is. I'm sure it's a theme that you know anyone who plays video game music has sort of crossed at some point. We're worried that we're plateauing because our themes keep getting better and better. And we're worried that we're not going to be able to top right. ourselves at some point. And maybe this is that year. I don't know. Uh, but yes, the theme this year is Oops, All Zelda, which has kind of a funny story behind it, as uh -huh. you maybe would guess. But we came up with this process a few years ago that, hey, we should probably come up with a theme for the convention pretty early on uh, so that we can make marketing materials and have things that resonate with people when we go to, you know, table at other events yeah. and things like that. It used to be kind of like an afterthought because we were and still are an extremely small team and everybody has a limit on how much bandwidth they have. But now we've settled into a groove where we actually settle on a theme for the following year at the end of the current year. So last year was the first year that we got to do that. Last year, our theme uh -huh. was liftoff. So everything was kind of like flight and space cool. related. Uh, nice. So it was very broad. It was very open-ended. We had some really cool art, you know, all these different flying ships from nice. different games, you know, Final Fantasy airships, Mario 3 airships, R-Wings, Loft Wings, stuff like that. And at the end of the 2022 event, what we had to do was submit the top two ideas that we had to our VIP mm -hmm. registrations, uh, and they get to vote on oh, next exciting. year's theme. So in the weeks leading up to the Ooh. event, we were kind of spitballing ideas, trying to narrow it down to two. Uh, and we had about a dozen ideas or so. Uh, each one of the board members would throw out an idea or two and kind of make a mock-up and kind of sell it to everybody sure. and pitch it and explain how it could be used and how it would be good and things like that. And then we would try to narrow it down to two. <laughs> and our uh, volunteer coordinator, Sarah, threw out the, the name Oops All Zelda as a joke because she couldn't think of something more like <laughs> to the point. She was like, what if we just had a general Zelda theme that wasn't any specific Zelda game so that we <laughs> didn't have to like adhere to a specific aesthetic because there's so many yeah. different ones, you know. Uh, and, you know, nice. everybody thought that name was really funny. And we all kind of interpreted it as a placeholder at the time. And we were narrowing down ideas. And we kept coming back to it. And we we're like, you know, let's let the Zelda thing is great. Like, we all like Zelda a lot. Like, everybody on the board is a Zelda fan. The guy who would be doing all the art stuff, that's his favorite game franchise. So he's going to be really excited to work on the art. Sure. And he's going to know what to do and what to draw from. Uh, so, we're, so we're like, yeah, we, we got to put the Zelda thing in the top two. And I, I don't remember what the other one is off the top of my head. I'd have to go look it up, but we narrowed it down to our two. And then we were like, oh guys, shoot, we didn't come up with a, with a name for the Zelda mm. theme to put in the poll. It still just says, oops, all Zelda. And we were like running out of time. The event was about to start and we weren't going to be able to think about it anymore. And we were just like, well, what if we just, what if it just was oops, all Zelda? That's funny. You know, like it's goofy and silly and so we just kept it and it won by a landslide <laughs> i mean that seems i i vote for all anything whatever it is it's like that that just yeah. explains and sells itself so i'm very excited to hear 
yeah. a bunch of uh, amazing Zelda music. Do you, do you have favorite Zelda music that you uh, keep coming back to? Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of the franchise. I've 100%ed every game in wow. the series. I'm very connected to it. It's wow. been with me for a long time. Nice. I think the ones that hit me the most profoundly in general are usually like the the overworld uh-huh. map themes. Uh-huh. You know, the ones the ones that jump to mind are Ocarina of Time, Wind Waker, and Twilight yeah. Princess, especially. Yeah. But it just depends on on the game too. Like I have specific connections with those games. You know, each one kind of means something a little bit different to me based on like sure. when it happened in life or uh, you know, just the tone of the game itself. But I, I'm very connected to Ocarina of Time. It was a formative, seminal experience yeah. for me as a kid. So I'm extremely yeah. connected to all the music in that game. That might be the most musical Zelda, one of them. It's it's an incredibly yeah. musical game, yeah. They really snuck it past uh, everybody. For sure. It's, it's incredible that it succeeded m- musically as a concept in the way that it did, like by giving Link this instrument that no one had ever heard of and <laughs> didn't know how to pronounce. And now everybody of knows course. what an ocarina is. Thanks to Zelda, it's really wild, actually, <laughs> yeah. um, that that <laughs> happened. But yeah, the game is is the game is so musical. It's such a big part of the game in so much more ways than so many more ways than it it, it might be for another game or even another Zelda game. Uh, absolutely, and you know, now that I think about it, like even the first Zelda is completely musical because it has this, you know, I would say one of the first epic. Uh, video game musical themes that just sure there's the one song and then there's the other song (laughs) when you're in the dungeon and (laughs) yep yeah there's not a lot of material it's like so many of those early nes games get by on one song but it's a damn good song like mike tyson's punch out is the other one (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah I mean that you had to you had to in the NES days yeah. you had to have a banger song cuz you were going to hear it 8000 times. So how did you feel when they did a total 180 on like thematic music that it connects you to the story to like Breath of the Wild where it's all environmental music basically. Yeah, I remember initially I was yeah. concerned. Not concerned that I wasn't going to like the game or that the music wouldn't be good. In some capacity, I was just concerned that it would affect my ability to Mm. connect with the game because I connect so strongly to games in that way. Like I use the musical themes to kind of know how to feel and that kind of thing. And I get I, I get attached to the musical theme. So when it comes back, I feel something. But it it wasn't a problem after you know spending as much time with the game that I did. uh, You know, well over two hundred hours. It it just, it made sense, you know, like if you were listening to some looping theme while you're walking around in the overworld, uh, you know, even if it like adaptively changed with the weather or day night cycle, or, you know, if you go into a different region or whatever, even if they had done all that legwork in, right. you know, Wise or FMOD or something, it still wouldn't have been quite the same. And there's, there's such a big focus on the sound design too, like to immerse you in the environment, like the sound of the grass and the wind, and the Mm -hmm. rain, and other characters moving and walking through the environment. And the music has to kind of step out of the way. So it it, it was just a responsible and smart choice, I think, on their part. And, you know, I I can only really experience that soundtrack in the context Uh of the game. 
uh, I think is the biggest consequence. Like I can't just sit down and listen to the Breath of the Wild soundtrack, yeah. maybe the main theme. Yeah. Whereas I could sit down and listen to the Twilight Princess Overworld theme and just, just wow. bask in it, you know, uh, and let the memories sweep over me. But like if you start playing the the guardian <laughs> encounter theme yeah. on my computer, I'm going to get that, <laughs> that anxiety. Like my phone is ringing or oh, someone's man. at my door, you know, I can't just sit down and listen to, I mean, it's so anxiety inducing. <laughs> yeah. I guess the town themes might be the sure. notable exceptions. Uh, cause they've kind of functioned yeah. more like traditional yeah. looping Zelda music. I think it's kind of also a safe space, uh, too. So I think the music is more appropriate in a place that's safe. Yeah. So you can kind of associate that with, mm-hmm. the, uh, with a place like, uh, I think it was Kakariko. Yeah. In this one. And the the sound design and the environmental sound is not as important when you're sure. in the town, I think. You don't have those heightened senses of like, oh, what's around yeah. me, you know, because you are safe, like you said. You're not vigilant for like anything that's going to all of a sudden happen. Gonna, oh, oh, I guess it's raining now. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. I, I just find it, so, it was such a bold choice, but such a perfect one. To me, it mirrors like a big shift in how... Music plays a secondary role in visual media uh, in general because, you know, we've mm-hmm. gone from the concept of a soundtrack basically uh, providing empathy for the protagonist and then possibly influencing, you know, definitely actually influencing how you feel about a situation or about a person. And, and we've sort of lost right. that and sort of switched to like the environmental score and stuff. And, yeah, you know, a lot of people parallel that to the sort of uh, lessening influence of religion, I guess, in, um, in culture and in media, and, and where people are more individualistic. And, and, and I think it was such a perfect choice for Breath of the Wild where, you know, it, it's, it's basically you versus the environment in every single way. So I like that. I like that. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I'm, yeah, like you're saying, I'm not humming the Guardian theme. I'm humming. Right. I mean, it is kind of hard to, yeah. to hum the uh, the Guardian theme, like, <laughs> without stumbling on a note or two. <laughs> it's also pretty meta, right? It's interesting philosophically. Because they they basically have the the entire legacy of Zelda music to quote at will and you sort of see it mm-hmm. in a less over, you hear it in a, in a less overt way and more more of in a sort of like oh this this is like this game and this i guess it's this situation sort of thing and there's so many little motifs that they reference i find uh, as you as you listen more and more yeah it's almost like a universal leap motif in a way almost. yeah mm-hmm. yeah they they lean heavily on previous source material because you know they can play five notes and you're like oh mm-hmm. you know and you know what it is and you know you know how to feel mm-hmm. but yeah I, w- I was just gonna say it it's an interesting change in approach from like kind of a philosophical standpoint i guess because we can do or not we but game developers can do so much more to inform the player how to feel than just with the music mm-hmm. you know and back in the day as we like to say uh, that wasn't always the case, and the music did a little bit more of that legwork. Uh, like, oh, okay, this theme is really bombastic and adventurous, so I'm feeling adventurous. And this music feels really foreboding, so I'm kind of tense, and I don't know what's going to happen mm-hmm. around the corner. But now, like with something like Breath of the Wild, you can have all these different little kind of nuanced 
moments and it's uh, you you kind of get these cues on how to feel otherwise. Like, oh, you get to the Zora town and it's like constantly raining and it's kind of, everything's kind of blue yeah. and cloudy and like muted by the rain. And like that has like a feeling to it. You know, and there's music playing there. Mm-hmm. Music's great. Mm-hmm. It's the Zora music that we know and love from Ocarina of Time and others. But it's not the primary thing that's telling you how to feel. Or when you're, you know, climbing a mountain out in the overworld and you're about to run out of stamina and the wind is blowing and Link (laughs) is like grunting, you know, maybe there's no music playing, but you kind of know how to feel because of all those other details that are being fed to you. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. It's, it's given up a bit of share in storytelling on a whole, but mm-hmm. it definitely plays a more decisive role when it has to because it's not so yeah. overt, as you said. I'm just remembering the thing that I always remember is when I was playing Breath of the Wild is like when I was in the stable, the stable theme kind of made me love my horse. It's like, ah, it's yeah. my horse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're so excited to come to the Minneapolis-St. Paul uh, region. If if you could make a one recommendation, if we were able to leave the conference, what's something in the area that you think we should check out? Uh, well, this is sort of shameless self-promo, mm-hmm. I guess, in a small way. But one place that I am will... I will most certainly be making a pilgrimage to, and I don't use the word pilgrimage lightly, is Blue Sun Soda Shop. I am an extreme uh, purveyor and connoisseur of craft soda uh, and interesting beverages and candies. And they have three or four locations throughout the Twin Cities now. And that is kind of the the mecca for those things. And that's where I kind of discovered them and got into them. So I... uh, I drink a lot of craft sodas on my streams. It's a big part of the the Backlog Boys lore. And I go up to Minneapolis about once or twice a year, usually once for VGM Con and maybe one other time. And that's when I stock up. That's where I get my sodas from. Even though I live down here in Texas, that's where I get all my craft sodas from. They make the the trip back I'm excited for that. And and that's a local sort of speciality, as it were. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This, the original shop is in Spring Lake Park, just a few, uh, a little that's bit north great. of the metro, and they've they've been doing really well and branching out. Uh, but that's where they're that's where they're from. As I hit uh, my my elder stature and my liver has suffered years of abuse from touring, I I kind of am craving more sodas and less uh, tins of beer. So I, I will definitely uh, I would definitely love to yeah. join you on that pilgrimage. And and other than VGM Con. I would love to hear about what's going on in your stream lately, because uh, you stream from, you know, I I know you in chat as BB Austin, but when you stream, it's from mm-hmm. Backlog Boys, which is, as you said, a duo. Um, yes. Yeah. It's confusing to uh, a lot makes of people. Sense. Makes sense. There's two of you, <laughs> and uh, and only one of some. Sometimes you stream together, and sometimes you stream apart, especially since you live apart. Correct. Uh, if you could give us a, a quick uh, tour of how that started, the turns it's taken, and what is currently uh, your focus on the stream. Sure. So Backlog Boys started in 2016, 
The other backlog boy is my good friend Vaughn. Vaughn and I met through VGMCon. He is another board member. And we, we met at Gamers Rhapsody 2. Right. He was a volunteer. And I was part of the planning committee. We didn't have a board of directors at that time. We weren't a nonprofit yet. And he was like a name that I heard, but we didn't really know each other. Uh, but we kind of interacted a few times throughout the event. And shortly after Gamers Rhapsody 2, I started scheming up this idea. I was getting really into collecting games, and I was realizing that I was having less and less time to play them, and I was amassing them much quicker than I was completing sure. them. And I have some completionist tendencies when I play games. Not always, but I lean that way. And I like getting through games. You know, I like checking boxes, like we said earlier. And yeah. th- that's where I get my, uh, my serotonin from. And I was like, well, how can, I, how can I figure out a way to kind of get through these games? And so I had the idea, well, what if I started a YouTube channel that was just me playing the games in my backlog and trying to get through them. And then by putting myself on a structured schedule of like recording episodes, I would be basically forcing myself to play these games and get through them in a somewhat more timely manner and trying to make something, you know, fun, maybe something a little bit more out of it. And I knew I didn't want to do it by myself. Right. So I started reaching out to friends to see who might be interested in. And lo and behold, uh, Vaughn was the person who said yes. Uh, Vaughn had a lot of free time on his hands at the Uh time and thought it sounded like a fun idea. And the weird catch of it was we didn't really know each other. (laughs) Uh, We we hadn't really become friends yet. You know, we we worked together on one event and we knew who the other person was and we kind of knew a few things about the other, but we hadn't really like hung out alone we didn't really know a whole lot about each other's lives or what we were what we were into. So we got together in my basement and started playing Dark Cloud for the PS2 and getting to know each other. And it was kind of an awkward, <laughs> bumpy time, but it was really special. And we kind of like fell into a rhythm right. with it. We made episodes for YouTube for f- like four years. Wow. And we tried a bunch of different formats as far as like length and how often we released things and all kinds of stuff like mm-hmm. that. And we got better and better at it as we went along. And I got sicker and sicker of editing as we went along. And uh, yeah, by early 2019, you know, we had kind of reached a point where we knew that our lives were going to go in different directions geographically. Uh-huh. But we didn't necessarily want to stop doing what we were doing. We we were having a lot of fun. Uh yeah. You know, we'd, we'd bring people on as guests and things like that. I, I was getting through games. I was feeling more accomplished. Like, I, you know, I felt like I was doing something by putting something out into the world, even though not a lot of people were interacting with it and consuming it necessarily. Sure. And yeah, Vaughn, Vaughn is in the military and he okay. knew that he was going to be going uh, into a, a program, uh, like an academic program as part of uh-huh. his job in the military for a year. And he was going to go to California and- mm-hmm. Then we knew that by the time he got back from California, I was going to be moved from Minnesota to Texas. So we started scheming up a plan and we had always had a Twitch channel parked, the Backlog Boys Twitch channel, but we didn't stream that much over the years because we didn't really understand how to do it. And streaming was not as easy in 2017 and 2018 as it is now. 
it was really hard to figure out how to get stuff connected and synced. Uh, the tool set was not the same. Right, uh, and you're streaming from retro consoles. I right, yeah. So I had to la- navigate all of that stuff too. Upscalers yeah. were not what they are now. Uh, converters and all that stuff. Yeah. It just was a totally different landscape, even though it was only like five or six years ago, which is wild to think about. Oh, um, man. I, so, I, side note, I, I, I meant to talk about converters and all that like retro, har- like nerdy hardware that oh, I yeah, love so much thing. as well. And like we could just do a whole another episode on that. So please come back and let's talk specifically about that. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to talk about yeah, retro we'd love to have you back. I, I've become quite an expert on the subject. And yeah. it's it's a lot of fun. But yeah, so Vaughn went to California and in twenty twenty, uh, my wife and I moved down here and I decided, well, we'll we'll pick the Backlog Boys Twitch channel back up and we'll both stream on it at different times. But it's kind of like what we used to do on YouTube, right? So, you know, we just kind of slowly cobbled that together. I started speedrunning Ocarina of Time randomizer, uh, having no idea what I was doing. Oh, wow. And uh, just hanging out with people and then gradually started once I felt more comfortable with it and like I was going to keep doing it. I started playing more games from the backlog and things just Mm -hmm. kind of uh, ballooned from there. Vaughn started joining in later in 2020 once he got settled and back from California. Right. And, uh, you know, he started streaming on his two days a week and I would stream on my two days a week. Um, And that's kind of how we did. It's a nice uh, way to have a stream where you don't feel beholden to create every single morsel of content and, you know, you you can fit it more into your schedule as it allows and mm-hmm. you get a you get a broader experience. So, what have you been streaming recently? Uh, so my format right now is I've been streaming I, I'm a big fan of RPGs. Uh, uh-huh. you know, retro style, Japanese style, turn-based RPGs. Yeah. Uh and that's what I've been playing on Fridays. And I just finished uh, Wild Arms 3, uh, which took me a very long time. Uh, but I had a, a, a lovely time with it. It's a pretty amazing game, pretty pretty spectacular game. It looked uh, really cool. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's super unique in so many different ways, like graphically, musically, game mechanics-wise. It just brings a lot to the table that I haven't seen in any other game and I've played a lot of them. So that was right. a great game. Uh, finished that up a few months ago and I've been playing Skies of Arcadia Legends, which is also in a very similar way, very unique uh, uh-huh. and brings a lot to the table. And I feel like I'm just getting started on that one, but I have been playing it for like uh, five or six weeks now. So And what, pla- what platform is that one on? Uh, this is a, a GameCube game. Uh, it was originally oh, okay. it was originally a Dreamcast game, I but it was ported it was a to GameCube, the GameCube. Yeah. yeah, that's why I asked, because I'm like, oh, is that a Dreamcast game? Because I just got a Dreamcast, and it's like, uh, nice. that's one of the games, apparently, for, for Dreamcast. Um, yes. Yeah, it's always touted as very highly. But on Tuesdays, I've been playing just kind of anything else. I let my chat and my Discord pick my games, and cool. for the Tuesday spot, I just throw up whatever. And uh, my, my current Tuesday game is uh, Donkey Kong Country 2, which is a, a Scuba Saul special. Yeah, yes. and, and a Curb special. Oh, and a Curb, Curb special. Uh, has a, oh, has yeah. some history has some history with DKC2. I have, compl- I have 100, uh, oh, 103, 102, wow. 101, depending on the game, uh, presented all of those games. Applause. 
Applause. Those small feet. Yep. And all from memory too. I didn't I didn't need a game guide or anything to get them all wow. done recently. I, I nice. I've been impressed. So I didn't play the DKC as a kid. Uh, I was completely unaware of them uh, for mm. whatever reason. And so I've I've been playing these for pretty much literally the first time. I've I've seen lots of speedruns of DKC too. So I, I'm familiar with the game. Obviously I've seen a lot of people stream it. I know the tunes. Um but it, it's cool to see how much they evolved and improved from DKC1 to DKC2. And I, like like you were saying with the completion. Yeah. Deeper platforming, just more, more um, I guess, more enriched areas, I guess. And mm-hmm. uh, more quirks to the to the levels too, more gimmicks, new styles of gameplay. Yeah. They, they introduced a lot in DKC2 versus, you know, what they introduced in DKC1. Yeah, there's a lot of different gameplay loops, which is really cool because you don't, you don't necessarily notice that. And certainly as a kid, you wouldn't have noticed that like, oh, okay, now they're going to have me do like an auto scroller or, oh, okay, now they're going to have me bounce on these things as a snake. You know, it's just like fun and different. And for sure. uh, it's it's also cool how they added in all these different tools for completionists, which were not in the first game. Yeah. Just adding extra value to a game so you could, you know, experience it a different way the second time or the third time. And uh and making it more attainable, you know, like being nice, like creating challenging situations for the player to overcome, but also giving them some tools to kind of figure out, hey, there is something here that exists. Can you get it? Mm. You know, you can mm. buy your hints and things like that. Yeah. One of my favorite instances of that was the one of the minecart levels in DKC2 where you have to race and beat everyone and get first place. Because at the very beginning, you know, instead of going right at the start, you can go backwards, get a speed boost, and to continue on. It adds a whole lot nice. of challenge uh, in its own way. But well, now you, know, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Scoops now finds out. Yeah, I love stuff like that. I'm a huge Rare fan as well. Uh, another game I just played recently was Banjo-Tooie for the first time, and that was wonderful. Nice. Nice, nice. I need to play a Banjo-Kazooie franchise game. Yeah, I guess rare rare games. I sort of have a love hate relationship with them because they're always very unique and very cheeky. Mm-hmm. And well, the the two the the two or three that I've played on stream have all been very difficult. Battletoads, especially. Yeah, that's too rich for my blood. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's just Conquer's Bad Fur Day, which is just cheeky yep. all on its own. It's just cheeky, that's next period. on my list now that I've finished uh, Tui. <laughs> nice. <laughs> As we wrap up, Austin, where can people find you? Where can people find uh, info on the con and anything else you want to plug? Sure. Well, first of all, if you're interested in VGM Con, uh, it's vgmcon.org, vgmcon.org. You can find a list of the guests, ticket prices, how to travel there, where to stay, all that sort of thing. Otherwise, if you are interested in watching me stream, just look for Backlog Boys on just about any any platform, but that's Backlog Boys on Twitch. Uh, we have a fun Instagram page where I have some craft soda reviews, and our old YouTube content is still there as well. We call it our legacy content now. That sounds much better than old. Nice. Uh, but we have over 1,500 episodes on YouTube. Uh, you can just pop into the playlist tab, find a game that you're interested in, and you know do some chores or something while Vaughn and I uh, shoot the breeze or talk about philosophy or whatever it is. <laughs> well, I've got some taxes to do, so I, I, I might be uh, taking you up on that <laughs> offer. There you go. Yeah, it's Cozy Vibes. Uh, otherwise, if you're interested in hearing my music, well, you should Google Do a Barrel Roll because 
that's something that everybody should experience at least once in their life. Uh, the screen spins around 180 degrees or 360 degrees on the x-axis or whatever it is. But yeah, we are wow. a, ban- a band called Do a Barrel Roll. Uh, we've got most of our music on Spotify. Some of it was not released in the United States, so it can't be released on, and licensed on Spotify. And you have to go to Bandcamp uh, for those tracks. But yeah, we have a we have an album that we released in 2020 called Super Smash Band Heroes, and that is available on Spotify and Bandcamp. We are actually going to be recording uh, some more tracks for the follow-up Super Smash Band Rivals uh, the week after Ooh. VGMCon while I'm up there in Minnesota. So working on another album right now. Nice. That's very exciting. Well, uh, I would like to uh, report that this this episode has been a rousing success and will not be instantly <laughs> hitting the recycle bin. We're going to you know, edit edit all of my long-winded questions down to something that sounds a little more concise. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we'll release it to the masses. It's been a really interesting experience talking to you. And please come back on the show whenever you have time. We'd love to talk more about all the different facets of your uh, various interests. Yeah. Uh, thanks again yeah, for having thanks me. Thanks for being on with us, Austin. This has been yeah, a pleasure. It's been a, no, no, you. Uh, it's been <laughs> great. Uh, thank you guys so much. You guys are very, very chill and easy to talk to. You guys have really interesting perspectives on stuff. So it's cool to come and kind of wrap uh, with you guys. Ah, shucks. Well, I can't wait to high-five you at VGM Con April 14th to 16th in MSP. And we'll provide all of these links in the show notes for you to find out more about Austin, Dual Barrel Roll, Backlog Boys, and of course, VGM Con. It's going to be a party. It will be a party. (laughs) It definitely will be. I'm just going to mainline craft soda the whole weekend. Stay up all weekend. (laughs) (laughs) We will be doing Uh, a Backlog Boys meetup uh, the week after VGM Con. Heck yeah. A few days after. Well, it all sounds like so much fun. Uh, So thus concludes episode 10 of the Retro Game Redux podcast. My name is Steve Kreklow, a.k.a. Scubasol. You can find me on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash Scubasol. Kerblet, we can find you on Twitch over at twitch.tv slash Kerblet. And um, if you want to reach out to us, we have a website, retrogameredux.com. On that, there's a link to email us, hello at retrogameredux.com. And also we have now have a Twitter account, at retrogameredux. So... We're yep. on the social media. You'll follow us. We, you know, we try to uh, highlight lots of stuff in the retro community whenever we can find them. Put them on our Twitter page. Yeah, definitely give us a follow. So thank you, Austin. Uh, thanks again, Curb, for uh, a lovely show. And until next episode, please, all of you, I beg, keep on gaming. Keep on. Bye bye.